American United strives to serve those who serve. Ask them about their VA home loans, which offer up to 100% financing, often with no down payment required. Make an appointment to research your options. Learn more at amucu.org. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. On today's episode, we've got Jaron Tree. He's an entrepreneur. He's a police officer, but he has 23 years of service with our U.S. Army, 16 of which in Special Forces. You never know. Those are the kinds of things in combat that are luck, but the things that aren't luck are the preparation, the conditioning, uh, the studying of the battlefield, the knowledge of your enemy. Um, those are the things you can't, you have to prepare for. You can't just take uh, and say, oh, I'll, I'll rise to the occasion. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Jaron, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So um, let's start off on the Special Forces side there. Uh, specifically, um, you're an 18 Delta. Jaron, what, is, what does that designation mean, being an 18 Delta in Special Forces? Well, when I started with Special Forces, they select for you, uh, based off of your own preferences, you give them three preferences, A and plus. There's four of them for enlisted. That's 18 Bravo, the weapons guy, 18 Charlie, which is the demolition guy, 18 Delta, which is Special Forces medic, which is what I, and 18 Echo, which is a communications sergeant. I had actually put 18 Bravo as my primary choice, and 18 Charlie is my secondary, and 18 Delta as my third, because I didn't want to be an Echo, because they had to learn more um and i didn't i couldn't see the dots and dashes being that well doing that well for me but 18 delta would be special forces medic something akin to maybe what you consider a pa emergency medicine PA. great um and you know over the years you and i've had a bunch of conversations about that um you know specifically on the on the um the side of qualifying as an 18 delta I mean, there's the regular medical knowledge and all the all the things to memorize. But um, thinking about the pressure of, of the time trials and the qualifications, can you talk to us about why qualifying as an 18 Delta uh, has that extra stress? Well, 
of the selection course for special forces, any special forces, there are gates. We call them gates, and they were essentially gates. If you didn't make it over the gate, you didn't make it to the next level of training. Uh, you start with selection, which is 21 days, pretty grueling, moving all the time, getting you know three and a quarter hours of sleep a night if you were lucky. Um, you have to wake up halfway through or three quarters of the way through that for, for fire guard. Um, make sure the fire doesn't light on, you know, buildings light on fire when everybody else is asleep. Also to check the message board where the instructors would leave. But the thing about special forces that's different from any other training is you don't have somebody yelling at you. They give you a, a task, they give you the conditions, but they don't give you the standard. They just tell you to do your best. So you have an open-ended open -ended task in front of you that you don't know the time frame. You don't know what your pass or, or fail is. So you have to go as hard and as fast as you can throughout. Uh, once you pass selection, you go to a what we call small unit tactics. At least when I was when I was going through training, they've changed it up a bit, and that is another you know month and a half or so of what they call small unit tactics, operational planning, you know, common core abilities that you need to learn to be able to survive and thrive in special forces. Uh, the ability to go in and be the expert, uh, you know, it doesn't really happen in a month and a half, but it gives you a good basis to build on. And then you go to the Q course, and for 18 Delta, the Q course is 50 was 52 weeks uh, i'm not sure if they've changed it but it's 52 weeks where you have a gate every week or so it's a test uh, either written or hands-on they realize that most 18 deltas or special forces in general are tactical attack uh correction hands-on learners you got to touch it you got to feel it you got to see it go into place to really kind of get it so they they gear it towards that but every time you hit a gate it's time trial it's knowledge it's uh, being able to accomplish the mission that they've given you, you know, there's not just one faucet that you have to focus on. You can't just focus on all the knowledge because then you fail the hands-on. You can't focus on all the hands-on because then you fail the knowledge. You have to give your time to those things that will uh, enhance your opportunity for success, really. And that means dividing your time well and use, utilizing your study time to learn both faucets of what you've got to do. Um so when you think about um, achieving something that, that takes incredible amounts of focus, um, you, you've uh, started businesses. Um, how do you think that, that those lessons of, of accomplishing the goal, how do you think that transitioned as you were looking at starting your own businesses? How do you think that that helped prepare you? Well, definitely the drive and determination. Um, you know, at certain points, if you're you're kind of taught there as you're going through these gates, that and you kind of teach yourself this as well that you you can't fail. Um, that you've got to keep pushing. That you, you got to push that envelope. And and starting a business is very much that way. You've got to push the envelope. Um, you can't. You don't have an end state. You know, you have your own end state, but nobody's going to hold that to you. Nobody's going to yell at you. Nobody's going to push you to do it. Uh, and that that has helped me in many ways. Okay, so thinking about this uh, extensive training, you took multiple different things. How do you feel like that applied to uh, to your entrepreneurial endeavors you did later on? It's very interesting because during my military time, uh, there was many different opportunities and you had to recognize the opportunity when it came along. And to capitalize on an opportunity, uh, i.e. a school or a deployment or being assigned to the right team or so on, you had to recognize it first. So recognizing opportunity was a big a big thing. But the other thing is, is, is not taking no for an answer. Um, I know that came with a double negative, but you can't take no for an answer. If you take no for an answer all the time, you'll 
you'll never go anywhere because everybody else is going to tell you no. Very few people in your life, and I found a few, thankfully, which actually helped quite a bit, who didn't tell me no. And I found the opportunity to pass through a lot of others who were just saying no because I would just try to go beyond them or I would try to work within the boundaries that they set to change the word answer from no to yes. And as an entrepreneur, it, you can't take no for an answer. Make, make your own luck? You can't. You got to make your own luck. And, and luck is, you know, is repaired mind. Uh, there is no such thing as luck, especially in, you know, when in combat, there's, there's, I'm not going to say there's luck, but there isn't luck. You know, it could, an artillery round could land anywhere. It's aimed to land and you might be under it and you might run under it. You never know. Those are the kinds of things in combat that are luck. But the things that aren't luck are the preparation, the conditioning, uh, the studying of the battlefield, the knowledge of your enemy. Um, those are things you can't, you have to prepare for. You can't just take uh, and say, oh, I'll, I'll ride to the occasion because you don't rise to the occasion there kind of like in business you don't rise to your occasion you fall to your to your best training or to your your training level so wherever you've trained yourself to that's where you're going to fall to and that's where you're going to have to base your ability to move forward from um, if you don't train yourself then you'll fall below the level of being able to be successful yeah you know, I'd love to talk for a minute about the habit or the mindset of, of adapt and overcome. Uh, you know, you think about innovators who, by definition, are, are cutting a new trail or entrepreneurs who recognize there's an extra skill set they need to learn or there's an extra uh, maybe area of their industry or completely new industry that they need to gain a certain level of proficiency in in a short period of time. Um, I mean, you had five combat tours, another three hazardous duty pay tours on top of that. Um, tell us about uh, tell us about encountering situations you didn't expect and thinking on your feet. Well, right now, I uh, didn't expect to have to think on my feet too much, but... <laughs> Now, um, you know, there's been many times, mostly during my deployments in peacetime, where uh, thinking on my feet was more a requirement. Um, in combat, it's mostly reaction. There's there's less time to think on your feet and less time to come up with a solution. So uh, the axiom we used is better to go, have a 70% plan, 70% chance of success and go now than it is to have a 90% chance of success and have taken too much time because you missed your window of opportunity. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I always prided myself in my life was if I didn't know something, I could go learn it. And you mentioned you know, what not knowing what you needed to know and learning that quickly when you realized you lacked that knowledge. Uh, it's pretty much applying yourself with a single-minded purpose of learning everything you can about that. Um, that doesn't allow for other things, though. You know, you, there's a balance to be had in everything. And if you don't balance it, you tend to become myopic or, or only seeing one avenue of approach. And uh, though I tend to focus on one thing at a time, I've had to learn over the years to be able to focus on different things or at least keep them in mind while I'm focusing on the main thing right in front of me and taking those one at a time. Um, Interesting. Um, you know, as you're saying that, I, I, I mean, it immediately makes me think of, you know, battlefield triage medicine when, when something went wrong or ID went off or somebody, you know, multiple people were shot and you're the, you're the medic on scene, you know, going through this, you know, who are you going to spend time on? Who's going to make it no matter what? Who's not going to make it no matter what? Who are you going to spend your time on? Can you, can you walk us through what that's like when it actually is a life and death scenario? Sure. That's what I taught for three years. I taught for three years at the Special Forces Medical Training Center uh, in Fort Bragg. And I can tell you what we teach 
and what the reality is. What we teach is a what you had just hit on is triage. You assess your patients very quickly. It doesn't matter if there's four or if there's 30 or if there's 100. The technique is the same. It is go through your patients very quickly and determine which ones are going to live no matter what you do, are going to die no matter what you do, and then where the, usually the bulk of your patients are going to be is somewhere in the middle. Uh, the guys that you can spend your time on that you know you can save without expending too much too many resources and just like business combat is resource intensive and you have to use your resources in the right place so for example um i came we were stationed with some iraqi national guard troops in iraq and they were hit by a mortar in the middle of a formation they had something like 30 injuries of those 30 there were only six that were severe and an additional two that pretty much died immediately we grabbed those up scooped them up took them to the clinic and we had you know where we had more help and in there we were able to go through and determine which ones were going to survive and which ones were going to die the reason you have to do that is because you have a limited number of resources if you use all of your resources on the one guy that's going to die in a heroic effort to save his life which we can do in the united states it's a leisure we have here but over there we didn't we had limited resources we couldn't spend everything on him because then it, the ball starts rolling downhill and then the next guy you could have saved using minimal resources then you don't have anything left for him or he doesn't have the time because now you've missed your opportunity window we call it uh, the golden you know we've got the golden hour the platinum 20 minutes you know people give it different definitions you have to affect treatment on somebody within a very short amount of time after initial injury and that means stabilizing the airway you know uh, stopping any blood from leaking out of the body because you're losing the body the ability the body to create what's called homeostasis or the ability to survive. All of us live in homeostasis. And as a medic, your job is to maintain that homeostasis for your patient. If you realize that they're too far beyond, you have to let them go. Now, that doesn't mean you're you're callously pushing them aside and saying, I'm not going to help you at all. You, know, you, you do what you can to stop the bleeding, you protect their airway, and you move on. If you get through everybody else and you end up saving everybody else and you come back to them and they're still alive, then you can do put more resources towards that. But if you put all your resources towards that one person that may die, is probably going to die, and instead of putting it towards the guy that may die, but you can save him, you've basically doomed more than one person. So you, you have to know where to focus your efforts. And in this instance, um, you know, the most severe patients we had when we had one guy who had his face partially blown away, we had another one with the penetrating chest wounds, some abdominal wounds, and some pretty severe uh, internal hemorrhaging. Um, and then a few with some just bleeding issues, you know, one that had lost his hand, uh, another one that had some deep lacerations in the legs and arms. Those were easy to, to treat. You go through, you do your initial assessment, you figure out what you can do, and you treat them. You move to the next guy, you know, and you're you're doing this at a basic level. And then if you can go back through, then you go through and do another detailed assessment, figure out what you can do with that, and then put more resources towards the one that you know you can, that that you'll cre- increase their quality of life. First is life limb or eyesight. Second, quality of life. And then when all that's done, you go to the guy that's been severely injured that may or may not survive probably will not survive. You already made the determination. And then you can make the heroic effort that you wanted to make initially. The biggest mistake medics make is they go to the guy with the most injuries that's probably going to die and they expend all their resources, all their effort and all their energy on that one guy. And then they end up losing two or three others because they didn't focus on the right place. 
You know, it's funny how many times we've we've had conversations about this over the last years, uh, and I've never thought of this example before. But as you're describing it, I'm thinking about um, back when I was running uh, that investment fund, the Energy Focus Investment Fund. We owned part of a hydroelectric company, and uh, our CEO had, you know, as a great CEO, he had lined up uh, an eighty million dollar guaranteed investment contract. Uh, type of return from the power purchase agreement that was supposed to come off the electricity from installing these certain turbines. And uh, we we were not wise in our resource allocation um, as a board. And, uh, you know, it was a big failing that I went into that not buying enough of the company or not having enough uh, allies on the board to be able to continue that because the CEO was able to take enough money that we had to install those turbines and instead started uh, 12 other projects instead of completing the one that we had. And as a result, uh, never got to be profitable and uh, ended up draining the entire company out of money, had to go out and and completely dilute the company all over again to raise funds again. And I just had a major leadership failing from our board to not rein in or fire our CEO who was not being wise with those allocation of resources. And, uh, you know, humans need oxygen and businesses need profit. And uh, right. we did not keep the airway open. <laughs> right? We didn't get the oxygen coming in. And, uh, you Unfortunately, know, go ahead. No, no. What are you going to say? Well, it's, that's exactly it. It's resource allocation. You know, as a special forces medic, we went into a country, we went into northern Iraq in 2003, uh, part of the invasion. We were behind enemy lines up at the Kurds in the mountains to the northeast in, of Iraq. And I went in with what I could, what I had on my back and I could carry in my arms to treat a, essentially at the time we had 13 men, which is unusual. We usually have 12 man ODAs, Operation Detachment Alpha Teams, which is the basic formation for special forces. And no, no, no knowledge of when we might be able to resupply those, those, uh, medical supplies. And my job was to keep them healthy, treat them in combat, treat their wounds, get them out of there, triage them, use my resources effectively to be able to save my team. That has helped in business, you know, to be able to look, step, step back and take a look and see, you know, if I use all my resources right here, I don't have enough to continue operations or I don't have enough to make my paycheck or I don't have enough to, you know, to make my payroll or, or to expand. You, you still have to resource, you have to resource allocate them. I and that's a, that's a basic fact of of business, uh, as you well found out right there, uh, that was a great story. I, that would have been very disheartening. Um, <laughs> yeah, we had emo- emotions were high. <laughs> emotions were high that. in those meetings. <laughs> you know, but it's. It, I would imagine it, it's very similar to you're standing over there watching somebody's life but leak out on the ground. You, you can't. Yeah, imagine. Luckily, luckily, in our case, it was only money, but. Um, if you don't have that last golden banded, you know, bandage or something, it, it, you've run, you've allocated your resources poorly, and then you watch your friend die. You know, it's a little more uh, graphic or or final, I suppose, than losing some money. Yeah, it's just money, uh, but money makes the world turn. And if you you just knew that if you hadn't put so many bandages on that guy that just got a laceration, you know, and you wanted to stop the bleeding with him, and you would have saved that one hemcon bandage or the bandage that stops bleeding for your majorly injured patient, you know, that, that that's the time you realize that resource allocation is probably one of the most important key aspects of not only combat, but of business. Yeah. Well, uh, shifting gears just a little bit, you know, the show is called, you know, the show here where we're, we're profiling these high achievers. Um, you think about, you know, the, the special operations forces are, are consistently referred to as the 1%, 1%ers of the military. Um, 
when you think about over the years uh, and in your own selection and, and watching other guys quit in the Q course and these things, um, in your mind, what what are the principles that separate the guys that make it from the guys who quit? That's an interesting question and one that we probably don't have time to delve into as much as we'd like to. I would say if I were to break it down and be those who never quit and those who allow their mental status or their emotional status to fall below the level of being able to sustain themselves. Um, honestly, the ones that are successful are the ones that believe in themselves. But not only that, they believe in the guys around them. I know that's an interesting, that's an odd thing to say, and it kind of just came to me. Over the years, I've watched many succeed and many, many, many fail. For example, in my selection course, we had over 400 people attend. Only 87 made it to the end, and they selected 70-something. So a few made it to the end and were non-selects. So even if you persevered and made it to the end and just didn't quit, didn't mean you were going to stay. The guys that stayed were the guys that looked around them and, and they put their hand out to the guys around them. You know, they, they found strength in each other. They had to have their own inherent core strength, but then they allowed others to, to tap into that strength. And when they were low, they tapped into the strength of those around them. I will say in my career, it was not as much about how I persevered or didn't quit or believed in myself as much as other people around me who at times when I needed it gave me the right word uh, and I held their hand out. Those people that are able to make personal connection and communication with those around them for a common goal. You're there by yourself. You're being assessed as your own individual, but you're a team. You're not trying to outdo anybody else to the point of showing them up. All you're doing is trying to perform your best. It doesn't matter what everybody else around you does, with the exception of how can I help them? How can I be a part of what they're doing as well? Ooh, that guy's doing something great. Let me let me emulate that. Or somebody asking you, how did you do it? And you you tell them, hey, this is what I did. You can take that and, and use it how you want. But it was it was a collective effort, um, along with the attitude of never never never. I'm not going to fail. I'm going to succeed. I'm going to move. It doesn't matter what task they give me. I'm going to continue to work until I finish it. Mental toughness, yeah. Well, do you? Is there anybody that stands out as an example to that? Is earlier in your career maybe that that really lived that in a way that that showed you the way you wanted to be? Oh, there's been many people in my life, but it, there's there's probably three that I could point it out to. Um, number one would be my father. Uh, my father, in the realms that he felt comfortable in, he was very successful. Um, he went from being an irrigation pipe salesman to being num- you know the number one computer salesman and technician for a company. Uh, long story how that worked, but because he did what I said earlier, he focused himself and learned as much as he could about a subject to give to make himself valuable, to be able to explain to people in a way that they understood and give them the knowledge that he had gained himself. So his his quote was, if I don't know it, give me give me a day and I'll, I'll come back and I'll be able to tell you what, what you need to do. You know, I will learn it mm-hmm. and then I will teach it to you. Um, and that was a huge help. Another one um, is just leaders, you know, leaders that I've had. Uh, I had a, a sergeant major, our company, senior, enlist, senior enlisted advisors, essentially our sergeant majors, sergeants major. And is that is that like an E9? That's an E9. Exactly. And, and what are you at the time? I was an E6 at the time. 
Um, but he took an interest in me and, you know, kind of helped guide and shape the way I thought about the military. And I'll never forget, you know, Sergeant Major Dougie Sweener, um, crazy old coot. He'd use the F word more often in the sentence than anybody else I knew, you know, and we'd make fun of him about it all the time. Uh, his language wasn't great, but he always had a good thing to say to people. He always came in and gave people uh, the benefit of his knowledge, of his experience, and he was able to listen. So not only was he able to advise and learn and, and help us learn, but he would learn from us, which, you know, to a, to an E6, you know, staff sergeant freshly in the special forces, uh, you know, knowing that I had even just a tiny amount to teach him kind of gave me the confidence to go out and teach other forces from other, other nationalities. You know, that's what's, what's really what special forces do. We are teachers above everything else. Um, we go in, we recruit, train, equip, and lead if we have to into combat uh, troops. Uh, people that have never had any military experience or training. And the third would be a friend of mine. Um, I met him in, I told you about SUT, Small Unit Tactics. Uh, I met him in Airborne School, and we just kind of lockstepped or basically went through everything together all the way to a certain point for maybe four years. We were, every school we went to, every combat deployment we went to, everything we did, we we just did it together. It just happened that way. We didn't plan it. I mean, we were in dive school and they give you uh, a swim test. They drop you out of a boat. You got to swim into shore. And the guy that's closest to you becomes your swim buddy throughout the course. And the guy's name is Bill Roth, a great friend of mine. Uh, he's still in special forces. He didn't retire when I did. And he's planning on staying for a few more years. Uh, always gave me the best benefit of his experience and knowledge and, you know, called me out when I needed to, called me a, an idiot and smacked me around, you know, worse names or, or buoyed me up when I needed it. Anyway, we're coming into shore. I'm coming into shore. I'm thinking, you know, I'm, is I'm this, booking Is it. this your uh, dive medic course or no, is this a combat diver course? What, what's this? This is a basic combat diver course. Okay. I give you, you got to have a swim buddy because you, you're underwater. You're two, always two people together when you're doing military diving and they got to You got to match with somebody who's you know, approximately your speed. You don't want to have somebody that's too slow with you swimming. You're just going to drag you down. Or somebody's too fast, they're going to try to kill you underwater and you're going to slow them down. So they, they make you swim in and your buddy that you come out of the water with closest to becomes your swim buddy. Well, I've been hanging out with Bill for over a year now and we come up at the same time, look at each other and, and just shaking our heads. We just can't get away from each other. But during that time, I got an ear infection, in my right ear, and it was the most painful thing I'd ever had. I couldn't hear out of my right ear. I couldn't dive below 10 feet. Going down was super crucial, super painful. I could have gotten a uh, you know, barometric injury, basically my ear imploding and rupturing my, my tympanic membrane, which would have flushed me out. But I kept going and kept going and he kept encouraging me to stay. And man, I wanted to quit. That thing hurt so bad. But uh, without Bill and his persistent, I want to say almost picking on me, <laughs> Uh, at that time, I probably wouldn't have made it all the way through. You know, I was on antibiotics. We had a deep dive to make. And if you've got a eardrum that's infected and you go down on a deep dive, it's likely to rupture. Now, on the day of the deep dive, with Bill keeping me there, I went underwater and about 10 feet, it all just it popped and cleared up. And I don't know if the, the it ruptured or not, but I felt great down to 120 feet. Or it was 105, I can't um, Came back up, no problems, and had no problems the rest of dive school. But uh, without his effort to keep me in, I wouldn't have made it through so those are probably the three most influential just knowing how they were and that they never quit and they just keep moving forward and learn what they can and pass that knowledge on to others because we're not in this alone you know there are guys out there that are good enough to make it all by themselves but they're extremely rare um and they usually end up very old and very lonely people 
And you know, when you when you connect with those around you, it's about communication. You know, there are few things that you can do in life that'll make you more successful than be able to communicate effectively with those around you. You know, it's interesting. Um, interesting when we have a peer that's almost like a mentor. Yeah, I, I think about a couple of folks. You know, one of the guys we had on the show already, Mitch Warner, has really been that for me from the uh, Arbinger Institute. Um, you know, I've, I've got these guys who. Are, are my age, you know, similar in age, similar position in life, you, you know, young kids like both you and I have. And, um, and it's interesting. I think about all the times that he called me on my crap, you know, and just, um, but was also there to like, give me a reality check when I had the teeter totter going the wrong way too. Like when it was down yeah. instead of, instead of flat, when I was, <laughs> you know, like give me the reality check about like, you know, things aren't as bad as you think they are also. Um, and I think for me, like, there's all these things, there's all these times I let myself off the hook about, you know, you come up against that choice, what you think you really should do versus what you feel like doing. And having folks like that who, they're, like, where you feel so similar to them, but they're choosing what they actually think they should do when you're about to choose what you want to yeah. do. And it's like, all of a sudden, my excuses are lost. You know, it's a special kind of gift, them setting an example when they're in your same position. And, uh, you know, it's it kind of makes me think of the obligation of what we can be to those around us if we're willing to make the hard choice or or courageously bring something up that would be uncomfortable but helpful to someone else. Agreed. I think we do those around us a huge disservice when we don't call them, like you said, on their crap. <laughs> Um, because then they'll never know to change. You, you may offend somebody, develop your personality skills, but really when you care about somebody and you want the best for them, call them on their crap. Because <laughs> if you don't, they're just going to keep going down that same road and it's never going to change because they can't see forest for the trees, if you get my meaning. They can't see above the, the, the cloud. All they see is darkness. They don't see a solution to their problem, whatever problem may be, until they get called on that. And then they've got to take a look at themselves. Every time I've failed in my life, and I've failed lots, I always had to stop. And, you know, I always wondered how come I failed. I'd, I'd go back and what we do is called a, a after action review, <laughs> you know, figure out who, when, where, what, and why, how this happened. How did I fail? Was it my fault or was it somebody else's fault? Invariably, it's my fault. But to have somebody else with an outside perspective to come to you and say, hey, dude, you did, you failed because of this. Uh, I had a great friend as I was an instructor and I uh, was focusing on other things in my life and I had lost my focus as an instructor at the course. And he pulled me outside of the office one day and he said, dude, as your friend, I'm telling you this, you need to, you need to, to straighten out. You're, you're, you're really, you know, I use a few more stronger words. You know, you're, you're screwing up and you need to focus. You need to regain that focus and, and be the person I know who you are. Yeah. And had he not called me out, I'd have just kept going down that bad road and I probably would not have made it any farther. So the people around you, pay attention to those people. You know, there's people that give you bad criticism and there's people that give you good criticism. Learn from both. Man, it, it is interesting, those mentors. Listen, I'm thinking about Germany and your prep for special forces. So when you were preparing to for to try out for the Green Braves for special forces, correct me if I'm wrong, you were in Germany and you didn't have time off to prep. So you had to do it all on your own, running down the roads with a backpack after your regular work hours. Is this right? Yeah, that's correct. Which is kind of ironic because I joined special forces and national guard in 1995. Um, and my complaint was similar. <laughs> uh, I didn't have time. I, you know, they weren't giving me time to go out and do my thing. I had my own time and I had a civilian job that I needed to go to. And I would have to go after hours and do my own running, my own rucking, you know, putting a backpack on and going as far as far and as long as you can, uh, which is the way I trained, which probably isn't correct. 
Um, so I joined Act. I went back to active duty, which I had been out for a couple of years, to be able to get paid to train. And when I got to the unit I was going to in Germany, uh, a place called Budigen, uh, maybe 50 kilometers east of Frankfurt, Germany, as the crow flies, a little farther than that driving. Um, beautiful little location. They just weren't doing enough to keep, get me in shape, you know, where I felt I needed to be in shape. I didn't, my feet hard, so they weren't, I wasn't getting blisters, uh, you know, my cardiovascular up so I can run and not get tired, uh, my strength and push-ups and sit-ups and then I as I was there yeah I'd, after work I'd throw in a backpack uh, I'd spend two or three hours rucking doing push-ups sit-ups and pull-ups uh, part of my problem problem there was to get off the Kasern uh, German post that we lived on I had to go along public roads I often had German cars going by I'm not going to say they were trying to run me over but I think they were trying to hit me with their rearview mirrors because it happened a few times not me sprawling into the woods with the side view mirror off the car <laughs> exactly um, I don't know if they just didn't see me I had uh, what they call a PT belt a reflective belt around my backpack I was wearing an orange vest with a reflector on it it'd be hard to miss me <laughs> Um, so after a while, I started carrying uh, eggs, raw eggs in my ammo pouches. <laughs> and if they hit me, I'd throw, I'd throw an egg at them. <laughs> you know, I was only on the road a very short time, and it happened probably two or three times. And I ended up having every time a car come by, I'd have to jump off the trail and make sure they weren't trying to run me over. Uh, some of the Germans around us didn't like us very much. A lot of them loved us. And then when we left, they all loved us because they realized what a boon we were to their economy. Um, but yeah. So what do you, what do you, for yourself, what do you credit it to, or, or what kind of tricks did you use to keep yourself going when you felt like quitting? Tricks. <clears throat> I just didn't things really you said any. yourself or any, any kind of like what it was that kept you going when you didn't feel like it? Fear of failure. Hmm. Fear of failure. Fear of failure got me up a lot. Got me out of bed. Got me moving. Uh, made me put on the ruck and get outside and, and go for a walk or, or do more push-ups, more sit-ups. Uh, yeah, fear, fear of failure. I would look at myself and say, hey, you want to be a failure or you want to succeed at what you're trying to do? Um, I mean, at one point, I was out playing softball. Uh, it was an organized activity, and somebody hit a fly out to the right field or center field where I was, and I went after it. While I was running towards it, somebody ran underneath me, and I tripped over him. I hit my right shoulder on the ground and separated my collarbone from my shoulder. Uh, it's called an AC joint dislocation. Really painful. And when I looked down on my shoulder, I saw my shoulder sticking up. And the first thought through my head was, this isn't going to stop me from going into special forces. This is after I'd been to selection and I was getting ready to go to the Q course, to airborne school. I had airborne school scheduled six months later. Um, eventually what happened is I had to go, I had surgery. Uh, I couldn't use my right arm. As I was told for nine months, I couldn't use my right arm. But I had airborne school four months after my surgery. I had the surgery in February, and I went to airborne like June, late May, early June time frame. Um, and I wasn't going to stop. I wasn't going to just say, no, I'm not going. And, I ha man, I took a PT test before I left Germany to go to airborne, and I failed it miserably. I just, I hadn't been doing anything since the surgery at all. Four months of no PT, four months of doing nothing. I failed it miserably. I, I got my, I wasn't even able to do my push-ups because my shoulder hurt so bad. Um, and I, at airborne school, you have to pass the PT test at the time for the 18 to 21 age scale. So the youngest age scale. And you had to do it at 70%. You had to get 70% of what your max score could be in all three events, push-ups, sit-ups, and, and run. And then you had to do a minimum, I think, don't quote me on this, but six or seven pull-ups, straight arms, dead hang pull-ups with somebody standing an inch in front of you. You can't touch them. Um, I couldn't even do one when I left Germany. And I had about three weeks 
to get ready. And the fear of failure just drove me to continue to work and to push and to strengthen my shoulder to get my cardio back. And I didn't do great when I got to, to airborne, but I passed everything that I needed to. I did all the push-ups, the pull-ups I didn't need to, and I was jumping out of airplanes within five months, six months, you know, five months of having shoulder surgery. I couldn't quit. It was fear of failure. It was fear of not being who I thought I could be. And uh, I don't know, a little fear is healthy. Too much fear can stop you. Because I've experienced both, <laughs> you know, um, you got to work past it. Well, thinking about fear and thinking about the unknown, um, you know, so many entrepreneurs, innovators today, you, you've got rapidly, rapidly changing technology. Uh, the, the world is obviously evolving at a faster pace than when our grandparents were here. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you can always have a competitor who's more well-funded enter a new market if you're pioneering one. You know, there's there's so many that can, things that can happen. Um, you know, you obviously, you, you've been to Bosnia, Kosovo, Iraq, all these places, Um what, you know, why don't you talk about uh, kinetic entries? Um, if I'm, if I remember right, you've you've done over 300 kinetic entries. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, so, and what does that mean, alone. kinetic entry? Uh, in a short, it's going through a door in a kinetic manner, either using explosives, um, shotgun breach, or ballistic breach, as we call it, or called hooligan tools. Uh, basically, you got to keep your kinetic energy moving forward. Once you hit that door, it doesn't matter if you hit it with an explosive, a shotgun, or a tool, or a sledgehammer. You have to keep the movement going. You, you can't stop. If you do, you set yourself up for failure. Of those 300 entries into homes and businesses and, and places and compounds, villages, um, we didn't have to, we didn't heat, meet heavy resistance. And you know, for a long time, I was like, man, I, I all I want to do is get in a fight, and, and we, we we rarely would get in a fight. And uh, you know, we drove around looking for fights. It's not a good thing to do, by the way. Don't ever do that in combat. But we we were so driven to to win, succeed, and 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 do our mission that we would go out and we would look for opportunities outside of our mission to forward our mission. I know it would make sense, but we were looking for fights. But we'd hit those places so hard and so fast that they didn't have the opportunity to organize defense. Took down you know lots of insurgents. Uh, terrorists, people, you know, one guy who was reportedly his wife said that he was kidnapping people, cutting their heads off and doing carnal things to their dead bodies, um, probably to make us want to go after him and put him in jail. But you know, these are the kind of people we were we were going to see. Now, anybody will tell you that's done this, that probably 70, 60 to 70 percent of all the places you hit are what we call dry holes or they're there. You know, the guys either not there that night or we had bad intelligence or I know crazy bad intelligence. You know, I think it's a lot like a business, you know, probably of the 100 decisions you make a day, I'm going to bet that probably 50 to 60 percent of them are, are either not going to forward your business, they're going to take your business back a step, or they aren't going to make any difference at all. They're just those kind of decisions. Just kind of like Especially in sales, right? When you're, looking, when you're looking for that next customer, you're looking to get the business rolling or the new but division it's, or it's those 30%, those ones that they are the real, the real deal. And in my case, they were the real bad guys. Uh, I remember one in particular, uh, we lost a soldier who was kidnapped off of a convoy that was ambushed outside of Baghdad International Air uh, Specialist Moppin. Six months later, we hit the village that was nearest to the ambush site and we sweep the whole thing. We've got pictures. They were up in Al Jazeera holding up bloody contractors and holding up their clothing and the weapons they took off of the soldiers that were there and you know we had all their pictures so we go through all of these houses and we're blowing doors in and kicking doors in i must have that night i probably kicked 
at least a hundred doors, you know, um, you know, being in each house, there's probably five or six doors and I don't wait to open the door to go in on those smaller houses. You know, uh, the town knew we were there and everybody was locking their doors so you couldn't get in. Um, I, I had, I started with probably eight explosives devices to get into the, into these houses. We call them door hangers or just little ones that go in your pocket and put over the doorknob and blow it in. I went through all of those. By the time I got done, I was basically using just my body weight to get through a door because I couldn't, I was so exhausted from kicking. Well, we find this one guy and he's, you know, 90% of these houses are dry holes. We found his boots. We found a dog tag and we found a piece of his uniform. And we found one of the guys that we had a picture of. I found one of the guys we had a picture of sitting in the middle of a group of kids. And he denied vehemently that it was him, but it was totally best, best match I've ever had for a terrorist. You know, it's always, not always we have a good picture for them, but Al Jazeera put it up there in, in beautiful frame. So we <laughs> had a cut frame of, a, of his face, but that was the one guy that was able to give us you know the knowledge of where he was you know he denied it of course until uh, they took him in and talked to him and then he was able to give him more information about where Moppin is and we were able to recover his remains later um, don't know if he died there or he died after we never got that information but to get a little bit of success means a lot of, of dirty door kicking you're going to be exhausted you're going to be tired same thing with with business you know like i said 90 percent of of all those things that come at you they're just fluff they're just things that don't matter 10 percent you got to focus those are the things you got to focus on you got to learn to recognize things that can affect change for your business and move you forward instead of moving you back or just keeping where you are that's great well, um, one of the things that we're trying to move forward is is our work at Child Rescue, and uh, you and your wife have been great supporters of ours, and, and you've done some other excellent work with, with other organizations uh, working on this issue of trying to combat child sex trafficking. But uh, do you feel like you could share kind of your, your initial uh, exposure to that world back in, back in Kosovo? Yeah, I think I told you the story. We were pretty much the only SWAT team that the Kosovo police, Kosovo police had available. They didn't have the training to go kick in doors and all of that. We had that training and a few times we were utilized and called out in a SWAT capacity to go in, you know, barricaded suspect. Um, one of them we got was an intelligence hit on where arms and ammunition and goods and stuff to support the terrorist organizations in Kosovo were coming through. It was a bar. Uh, we went and we hit this place and it was a pretty large, big club had lots of rooms upstairs and we come across 12 women that were living in there and I didn't think anything of it. We gathered everybody in the main room, um, which was what our job was, you know, any casualties or anybody we found in the house, we collected in one spot. And we'd gotten the whole place locked down. We'd gone through, we'd searched everything and we had the guys we wanted and we were questioning them. And as I'm walking through the room, one of these women comes to me and in broken English, she said, can you help us? And I was kind of taken back. You know, most most Kosovo, Kosovo know English. They know a few words, um, but she wasn't. She was from Russia, and the other girls there were from all over the middle, you know, Eastern Europe, and, and I was like, what do you mean? Can I, can I help you with what? She said, we're slaves here. We were brought here from our countries, you know, told we were going to have a better life, and, and then they used us to sell for sex. The bad thing was, we found out if it, the worst things can be on top of that, was that we had American service members that were going there and paying for the services of these girls. That really hit me hard. Um, we found them a UN organization that assisted them. We got 11 of them out. The 12th girl wouldn't leave. And, you know, I said, well, aren't you a slave here? Aren't they making you do this? She said, well, yes, but I'm, I'm spoiled. There's nothing you can do for me now. This is, this is all I know. This is all I can be. I'm, I'm ruined. Um, and there was nothing. I couldn't force her. I couldn't take her out of there. 
and that still haunts me kind of to this day. But that was the first time I ran across actual sexual slavery. I had I had an idea that it was out there prior to that, but that was the first time I actually saw it. And then it kind of went to the background for a while. And as you know, uh, I was introduced to you and reintroduced back into that world of, of people utilizing young children to satisfy the sexual desires, the deviant desires of adults from around the world and, and the attempt to stop it. That's actually why I went into law enforcement is because I felt I needed, I had the kinetic side of it. I had the intelligence gathering side of it, but I wanted the law side of it so I could be more effective in going after these kids and help. Yeah. You know, it, it's, there's so many things that can be depressing about the issue and, and certainly the PTSD and, and the lack of self-worth, you know, the image of, of so many of uh, the individuals have been harmed in this way that, that the aftercare groups w- work magic with when they are able to get them in and, and help them, um, you know, restore their, their value of themselves. Um, and it really seems like it's the success stories that encourage people to want to be a part of it and that um, give people the hope that more can be done. Are there any of the success stories that stand out to you um, of, of why it's worth working on this issue? Why it's, you know, why this isn't just one of those depressing things we should ignore? <laughs> well, I can tell you, I felt successful getting releasing, getting those 11 ladies out of there. Uh, mm. They were beautiful women. They had value. They have value. <clears throat> and they were able to go home to their families. Um, I think they actually, a couple of them actually got the opportunity to come to the States, uh, which don't kid yourself, even now where everybody says, you know, everybody here that lives in the U.S. is, oh, this the American dream is dead. Well, that's a lot. That's that's exactly what you were just saying, people focusing on the negative. People want to come here to the United States because this is still a land of opportunity. Um, those freedoms are maybe getting encroached on more and more lately, but yeah, we still have more freedom than anywhere else I've ever been. And I've been in many, many different countries in the world and lived in, in view of those as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the success story is seeing a little girl or a little boy taken out of that situation and treated like a human being. There's nothing better. There's nothing that will that will melt your heart and, and change a hardened soul to to somebody that wants to be you know the loving grandfather or a loving father to a child. Um, it'll change a hardened heart to see a child start getting treated like a person, like they matter more yeah. than just as a profit making thing. It's great. Um, it's awesome to see him released and well, see the, the realization of freedom. Well, we, we certainly appreciate all, all efforts, both you and your wife, um, in, in making this happen. Um, you know, uh, one of the things you and I have talked about a lot, uh, both being kind of addicted learner types is, is, uh, the world of books and audiobooks. Um, what are, what are some of your recommendations for, for entrepreneurs out there today? Are there any books that you think, uh, people should be reading? <laughs> you know, the main ones that I, that I go back to all the time, um, it's going to sound like a plug, but maybe, I don't know. Uh, I have, I'm, I'm a religious person. So the books of my religion, I read as much as I can. I listen to the guidance, the people who know those books. Um, we're not going to go into that, but the two that I listen to over and over again are ones that you're very familiar with as well. One is leadership and self-deception and the other is anatomy of peace. Uh, I read the anatomy of peace not long after I got out of the military. Uh, actually, 
actually you gave me my first copy and um, it changed the way I look at life. I'd already known a lot of the principles in there I, and, I, and I've heard as going through the training that they offer also, I've heard that many people say that, but you didn't know how to put it into action. You didn't, you couldn't see a plan of action behind it. What it does is give you a plan of action on how to uh, be at peace with those around you and, you know, stop deceiving yourself and those things, you know, you called somebody calling you out on your bull crap. Well, uh, when you look at yourself through the lens of the principles that are taught in those books is those books, you have to look at yourself in that light and correct those things that are wrong. Uh, the other one that I read bits and parts of every once in a while just to keep myself on and probably most warriors I would say uh, would have to read this book. It's called The Art of War by Mao Tung. Not sorry, not Mao Tung. Uh, Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu, thank you. I don't know why I went to Chairman Mao for that. <laughs> I was just reading a book on him and that's well, you probably know he why read I got it. confused. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, Tetsung, um, he has a lot of advice in there that is current today in war as in business. Um, if you take those, his precepts, cause he is kind of a brutal guy and you take out the brutality and you can't, and you, and you take away the, the leadership and the, and the approaches that he takes to problem sets. And you add that to the, the way of being that are described in the leadership of, you know, book of leadership and self-deception and the anatomy of peace. Um, those are kind of a win-win win-win. Win-win combination, in my opinion. Uh, I can't think of many others. You know, I read voraciously. I read as many books as I can get my hands on, uh, from classics to you know, I'll even read some of my son's books to see what he's reading. You know, some of the preteen books, and everything has something to learn from, either a negative learning or a positive learning from. So, devouring books has always been a passion of mine. I just, I got, got when I pick one up that I can just have a meal off of. As much as that sounds odd, uh, it makes a big difference in the way I approach life and the knowledge that I have. That's great. Well, we really appreciate you taking time with us today and thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed talking to you. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.